great offers and a great podcast? What a day! Thank you, sponsors. We appreciate it. This is an ICRT podcast. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Dimitri Burias. Hey, good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing the Ministry of Labour hiking the minimum wage amid cost of living concerns and a pushback from business owners. The final candidate for Taipei's mayoral election announcing her run as the candidates register for ballots. A Singaporean entrepreneur announcing the launch of the next Apple News. The founder of United Microelectronics regaining his Taiwan citizenship and donating lots of money to train a militia in support of Taiwan's defence against China. And a pet squirrel attack on the Taipei Metro. But we'll begin with the Jingmen Defence Command on Thursday of this week, announcing that troops stationed on Shur Islet shot down a Chinese civilian-operated drone. The islet is located some one kilometre from Lesser Jingmen and four kilometres from China's Shaman Island. According to the army, troops detected the unidentified drone flying in restricted areas near its outpost at noon on Thursday and fired warning flares and live rounds and ammunition in an attempt to expel it. However, as the drone continued to hover over the area, soldiers ultimately shot it down. Troops had previously only fired warning flares and warning live rounds in response to such incursions. And the shooting down of the drone is the first such incident since the Ministry of National Defence on Monday of this week made public what it described as its more robust response to unauthorised drone incursions. Now, it released its four-step rules or engagement for drone incursions, saying it consists of firing warning flares, reporting the incursion, expelling the drone, and ultimately shooting it down. Now, the Defence Ministry says the four-step rules are aimed at better dealing with the rising threat of Chinese drones over the long term, and it's also working on a drone defence system that will be installed by next year on both Jingmen and Matsu. The anti-drone defence system will also be installed at 45 sites on Taiwan proper, and those include harbours, airports, defence outposts in remote mountainous areas and missile launch facilities. Now the shooting down of the drone came after White House National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications John Kirby said Washington will not accept Chinese manoeuvres that attempt to establish a new normal across the Taiwan Strait. While here in Taipei, President Tsai Ing-wen announced that she had instructed the armed forces to take strong countermeasures when necessary to protect Taiwan's airspace. And speaking during an inspection tour of troops on Pung Tsai stressed that her administration will not provoke or start a war, but that doesn't mean Taiwan will not take steps to counter Chinese provocations, including sending drones towards the outlying islands. Now, the military had faced criticism in recent weeks, of course, as some people had accused it of doing very little to counter the incursions by the Chinese UAVs. So, Brian, first of all, we had military exercises. We've got planes on a daily basis, and now we've got un manned aerial vehicles buzzing right. the skies. Yeah, and I think uh, what is needed to notice is that these are civilian drones. They are not military drones. So I do wonder if there have been a different response if these have been mostly military drones. But the Taiwanese government then is in a tricky bind here. It does not want to escalate, but also needs to come off as firm. Uh, for example, if it doesn't come off as firm, then this will be used for psychological warfare purposes. Uh, it will be made to use to make the military look, though, as it cannot deal with even just a drone. And so, for example, the concern or discussion of this comes after the video from the drone 
of soldiers throwing rocks at the drone uh, began to circulate on Chinese social media. And so then in that case, I also think the Taiwanese government does not want to come off as though it's just shooting down drones immediately. And so that's why there's a kind of dance back and forth for a few days uh, regarding firing of flares, uh, the live rounds are fired in warning to dispel the drone, and then finally shooting a drone down. But I think it was to be expected that eventually a drone would be shot down to have this show of firmness. Um, I think it's also going to be interesting to see what happens next. For example, if these are civilians, there could be more drones that get set over uh, because maybe someone's bored or has too many drones on their hands and it doesn't matter if they get destroyed and, and so forth. But my question here, Brian, is, I mean, can you just buy a drone in China and fly it around willy-nilly or are these people that own the drones acting on behalf of a bigger power? That's another question as well, and so it's very hard to know. And I think that similar to a lot of, uh, for example, Chinese disinformation, there's no smoking gun oftentimes. That proves whether it is uh, actually civilian or perhaps it has a civilian operator. But at least the military, the Taiwanese military, frames these as civilian use drones, and so there's at least that. But drones are not actually that expensive, too, sometimes. And so I think that that's another factor in this. And because of how close Tiananmen is to China, that doesn't make it too hard to fly over drones. And Dimitri, do you think the military should be shooting them out of the sky or blasting them out of the sky, so to speak, or maybe trying to catch the drones and bring them into land, like with firing a net gun or something along those lines? Well, uh, military installation, installations are no-fly zones for unauthorized drones in all countries. So according to the U.S. military, army installations are the founding of the army readiness, meaning that the commanders have the ability and the rights to damage, destroy, seize, or disab- disable unauthorized unnamed aircraft to protect their people, missions, and assets. So drone operators who violate Federal uh, Aviation Administration rules in the U.S., are also subject to potential civil penalties and criminal criminal charges. So the same is true in Taiwan. If the drones are operated by civilians in Taiwan or in China or any country, well, it makes sense to enforce flight restrictions and require civil penalties and criminal charges for the drone operators. But you think they should be shooting them down or maybe trying to catch them? Well, they can try both, but here the buzz is, it's a different story, the media buzz that we see right now. Authorities need to show that they take these actions seriously, even though we only had a few unauthorized flights near military installations so far. I'm sure that a video of a military officer throwing stones at a tiny drone will be a hit on TikTok, but we shouldn't miss the big picture here. Satellite imagery is much more efficient when it comes to spying foreign military installation, meaning that the drone incidents are likely distractions. So that is already enough. There is already enough tensions across the Taiwan Strait. So maybe it's not the right time right now to start shooting at whatever things flies around. And Brian, do you think shooting them down or maybe catching them? So I do like the images that come out of Japan of the uh, drones, but that's catching other drones. And so maybe that's something that could be tried. Uh, but I think generally it is the case that there is concern about unmanned aerial vehicles in all forms, uh, around airports generally, for example, because of the fact that they might interfere with flights. Uh, even during the Pelosi visit, for example, anti-aircraft artillery was set up in case there were attempts to, for example, launch a drone and interfere with the aircraft landing and that sort of thing. So this is generally a challenge that uh, the Taiwanese government has dealt with. It's actually an interesting dilemma, too, because drone operators in Taiwan have uh, often lobbied the government, saying that the current measures are too restrictive. There are too many no-flight zones in urban areas. That makes it hard to operate civilian drones. But here we're dealing with, obviously, military installations and possibly harassment or military activity conducted using civilian drones, and so that's a different cha- set of challenges entirely. 
There is a chance to be creative again. Uh, I remember that in some countries around airports, they use uh, eagles to try to scare <laughs> pigeons well. away. So, well, maybe we can equip our military with some eagles and then just train them to catch those drones, which are actually tiny drones and wouldn't hurt the animals. I think, that, I think that'd also be a hit on TikTok. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and of course, Brian, Dimitri mentioned like it's illegal to do this and you can prosecute people for doing it if your drone enters a restricted airspace area. But of course, the people doing this are in China, so there's not much chance of them actually authorities getting involved to arrest someone. And it's very unlikely that China would assist with such an operation. That's right, of course. And so, uh, for example, within Taiwan itself, there are calls for installing RFID trackers on drones so you know who the, owns the drone, where it came from, and why it's in an area, and so forth. But of course, it's not possible to do that with China. And in this case, China and Taiwan are quite close when it comes to Jingwen. So that's why you have this kind of operation, uh, this kind of activity. Uh, but yeah, I mean, capturing the drone probably offer more intelligence than destroying it per se. Though I don't know how destructive the shots for, for example, to fire down a drone. But then you can see more about where it came from. Is it actually civilian? Uh, was recorded on it, etc. And that kind of thing. And Dimitri, do you think possibly in the coming months, Chinese drone operations could actually hit Taiwan proper? Well, it's hard to say, but the more we report on this, the more we'll have people buying maybe drones and having maybe trying to do the same to get some nice pictures and nice videos that they can put on TikTok. Now, uh, whether they can operate those tiny drones from China and send them here, that's a different story because it's close to China's coast, coastline, but it's still far away, far away enough to 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 I mean uh, operate the, those devices remotely. Yeah, I think also it is worth thinking about that there are other ways to interfere with drones. I mean, for example, electronic means. Drones are often dependent on, for example, GPS satellites in order to fly. I mean, some drones will just not take off at all without a GPS satellite connection because you don't want to get lost and et cetera. Um, and so usually the ones that are able to fly over, for example, oceans and, and those kind of conditions are more advanced, have longer battery life and a more stable connection. But perhaps there are ways to interfere with signal. And that's one way, for example, to get them down without, for example, having to fire uh, and then you can get the drone and see what happens. But I think it is a it is a growing challenge. And I think drones, civilian operated, whether from Taiwan, from China, etc., that's a challenge, actually, I think, that the government has had to deal with. And sometimes the government is not flexible enough to come up with measures to deal with it. So it's a bit lagging behind. And so I think this actually also reflects that challenge, because you do have this discussion, too, within Taiwan proper regarding drones. And of course, Brian, they also pose a risk to civilian air traffic. That's right, yeah. And so I think that's the thing, because uh, drones are hard to track, and so they might interfere with uh, airplane traffic, and you might have a drone, etc. I mean, live in a time in which, for example, you'll just have a lot of reports of drones and aircraft, and it's very unclear uh, where they come from, but they, they pose a hazard to aircraft, particularly that are trying to land or take off and, and that sort of thing. And so that already adds to the challenges of, of aviation, where you have birds, for example, flying around, and that poses a threat. I mean, as with the pigeons that I mentioned earlier. Well, I agree with that. Uh, maybe there is also, we could maybe consider registering uh, the device whenever you buy a new drone. You maybe could register or the government uh, authorities could ask uh, users to register their drone first so they can keep track of the drones flying around. And whenever uh, a user tries to enter those uh, non-flying zones, if the drones get caught, they can find out quickly who bought that drone. 
Moving on now, and the Ministry of Labour on Thursday decided to increase the minimum monthly wage by 4.55% and the minimum hourly wage by 4.76%. The hikes will take effect on January the 1st of next year. Now, speaking after the Minimum Wage Review Committee announced the raise in the minimum wage, Labour Minister Xu Ming-chuan said the move is aimed at offsetting inflationary pressure on employees and minimising the cost to businesses. Now, according to Xu, the hike was calculated based on an assessment of inflation as measured by the Consumer Price Index growth, which is currently forecast at 2.92% this year, and also economic growth this year, which is forecast to be 3.76%. Now, if the hike is approved by the Cabinet, as it will likely be, it will raise the minimum monthly wage from the current 25,250 to 26,400 NT, and the minimum hourly wage will increase from 168 to 176 NT. Now, this is quite interesting, because, of course, the minimum wage hikes come after the government basically said the public sector will not be getting a pay rise next year, Brian. Yeah, that's right. And so it's a tricky balance because I think particularly private sector and public sector workers are watching each other. The government often wants to keep public sector workers happy, particularly after the pension reforms of the last decade, uh, because of the fact that you need them to keep government working. So then it's hard to do when, when there's, uh, for example, they're unhappy with their pensions being cut. Uh, but then when, with Taiwan, we see the usual pattern with low wages, long working hours. Uh, in 2020, according to statistics released last year by the Ministry of Labor, Taiwan again had the fourth longest working hours in the world. And so I think the uh, organized labor, for example, will view this as not enough. On the other hand, business will view this as a cost they cannot take right now, particularly when they have taken a hit due to COVID-19, as in past years. And of course, Brian, that's exactly what happened. But the labor unions were calling, of course, for a 10% <laughs> hike. And the business owners and business federations were saying they were hoping for no more than a 3% hike. That's right. And so there's always this contention basically every year regarding pay raises and the attempt to pressure the government in order to raise uh, the pay for the public at large. Uh, but then business pushes back against this, uh, claiming reasons such as uh, just that they need they have difficulty surviving, small to medium-sized enterprises especially. And so uh, particularly there have also been criticism past years of the lack of transparency of the criteria by which the uh, pay raise is decided by the government. And so I think that's another factor that can be zoomed in on. And of course, Dimitri, this is obviously Brian hinted, this is not a new thing. Of course, business owners and labour unions and labour groups have long argued over whether the minimum wage should be hiked by this percentage or this percentage, and if it's a good time to hike it at all. Well, they they do have a point. Those Taiwanese business groups decried the already tough economic conditions at a time when businesses are already facing higher costs for raw materials and electricity. According to the chairman of the General Chamber of Commerce of the Republic of China, raising the minimum wage during the pandemic is, quote, like rubbing salt on the woods of the service industry. But analysts responded that the increase was actually within a range of what most companies can accept and would offer workers some relief as they are try- they try to cope with the rising cost of living. The larger problem is the most that most Taiwanese workers have salaries which have remained more or less stagnant for years, mainly as a result of unfair profit sharing by their employers and government policies to keep manufacturing jobs in Taiwan. And of course, a government policy touted by the president, where she hopes to see the minimum monthly wage raised to 30,000 NT before she leaves office. Yeah, uh, well, it's it's on the way. But if twenty six thousand, uh, it's still pretty low. We we still ha- we have to keep in mind there are actually two minimum wages. There is a minimum wage for Taiwanese and residents in Taiwan, 
but blue-collar workers also have a minimum wage which is lower than that. Now, young graduates in Taiwan, when they pitch for it, when they apply for a job uh, in Taipei, they can expect twenty-eight to thirty-two thousand ninety dollars per month for their first job. So their their income will be already pretty close to the minimum wage. So we need to understand that the wage gap in Taiwan keeps increasing. And the government needs also to address this issue. Increasing the minimum wage is important, bit by bit. But even the goal of thirty thousand ninety dollars per month is already pretty low. So the goal of thirty thousand, Brian, is it unreachable before President Tsai Ing-wen leaves office for good? It's a question because particularly Tsai began office by,、uh, for example, trying to carry out a series of labor reforms that were seen as undoing thirty years of, of attempts to push for reforms to better the condition for workers and undoing public holidays. And so I think, for example, that'd be a symbolic victory for Tsai leaving office,、uh, having raised the minimum wage to thirty thousand, particularly at a time in which there's a discussion of how college graduates make infamously low. Twenty-two k salaries, and so I think it has symbolic、uh, victory of of just pushing it to thirty thousand. But there would, of course, be pushback. I mean, the cultural argument、uh, against the companies is that, for example, if you do increase the minimum wage, that means more spending, and that would benefit the economy overall. But it is generally true that costs, living costs, have risen in Taiwan while wages have remained stagnant, and profits made by companies do not trickle down to their workers. And so there is that challenge. Well. You know, maybe there are some、uh, uh, foreign teachers listening to this program. But twenty twenty years ago,、uh, the hourly、uh, pay for an English lesson was around six hundred ninety dollar. It's still six hundred ninety dollar today. So、uh, we understand that、uh, they need to take into account the, the cost of increasing those minimum the, the, the minimum wage, but. The cost of living in Taiwan is also getting higher and higher, so that's why most workers are looking forward, especially this year, with the、uh, inflation, are looking for a decent、uh, increase in the minimum wage. And what about the business owners, Brian? I mean, do you think obviously some of them drive Bugattis, but not all of them drive Bugattis? <laughs> So I think some of them will frame them. I mean, particularly, I think what's interesting is that the economy is often seen as based on small to medium-sized enterprises, and that is used then, I think, by business owners to say that, well, we're actually small, we will take a hit too. We're actually not so above the worker. But that's not always true in some cases either. And so I think there's that challenge.、Uh, the fact is that the companies will frame themselves as necessary.、Uh, that this is there, it cannot there cannot be cuts at present, or that the, there cannot be any increase in minimum wage and that kind of thing.、Uh, I also think that particularly the argument then will be that Taiwan needs to boost its international competitiveness, and that if you do things now to affect companies, well, perhaps they are not incentivized to stay in Taiwan, or just、uh, that this will damage Taiwan's ability to 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 operate on the international stage economically. And so I think you have these arguments being thrown around. I mean, these are not new arguments either.、It's Not just this year that this is happening either. Because of course, Dmitry, the government, President Tsai Ing-wen, and the government when they first took office were encouraging Taiwan overseas Taiwanese businesses to move back to Taiwan. Well, with a guarantee that the cost, the minimum wage, wouldn't increase. But I don't know if you remember last year all these stories about the record、uh, record profit for. Companies in the semiconductor industry—it's not all companies, but many companies、uh, succeed despite the COVID and the pandemic. Succeed in、uh, increasing their profit last year. So it's a bit sad that just a few months later we're told that well, it's not the right time to increase the minimum wage. Now, for those companies that who couldn't afford it. Especially、uh, companies in the hospitality sector, the government already announced some subsidies, and they said they would maybe try to help those companies to balance、uh, to balance the, the the increase in their cost. 
That's right. Yeah, exports are actually doing quite well uh, because of COVID. In fact, because Taiwan was less affected compared to other economies, and so in this sense, despite that this was the case, uh, companies are still saying that well, COVID took a hit for us and so forth. And so I think it's one of those metrics too that one look at various metrics of the economy, and things are actually not necessarily that bad. But companies will, of course, play this up in order to try to avoid having to uh, spend money on on wages for their workers. And looking at some of the latest local election news, well, it was registration week this week for people running in the local elections. Now, voters will be casting their ballots on November the 26th to elect 11,023 public officials at all levels of local government in at the nine-in-one elections. Now, the candidates will be running for city mayor, county magistrate, city and county council membership, township mayor and council members, and other local government positions right down to the neighbourhood level. Now, over 83% of the island's population are eligible to cast their their ballots, and that figure apparently includes some 760,000 first-time voters. Now, former Deputy Taipei Mayor Vivian Huang left it to the last minute to formally announce her plans to run for Taipei's top job, and she'll be running against former Health Minister Chen Shih-jong for the DPP and the KMT's Zheng Wen-an. Now, current polls, which we're actually still allowed to talk about, show that Zheng is leading the race, followed by Huang and then Chen in third place. Now, meanwhile, musician and actor Xia Hershen, who goes by the moniker R. Called, brought some colour to the Taipei City Council election this week when he announced plans to represent the Zhongzheng and Wanhua constituency. Now, according to R. Called, he's running on a platform that aims to legalise marijuana, open a legal red light district and legalise modified vehicles on Taipei's city streets. So, Brian, um, so some serious election news there and some, <laughs> so, OK, OK, maybe. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I always do enjoy this aspect of Taipei's <clears throat> political culture in which the candidates all register to vote or to, to run in elections on the same day and make this into a photo op. And so then you have all these candidates going to the offices, taking photos, making IG stories and, and that sort of thing. I do wonder if the office workers get a bit frustrated by that. Um, and I also do wonder if anyone gets stuck in traffic. There's a funny story from Wu Jun, who's running in the Xingyi area, for example, that when he went to the uh, office, he posts on Facebook, when he took the taxi, the taxi driver asked, are you going to get married? And he was like, okay. <laughs> does not necessarily bode well electorally if someone in your district does not recognize you. Um, but in that sense, then, one does have serious candidates, and it's interesting then that someone like Vivian Huang waited until the last minute to register or to make known that she was actually running for office despite weeks of anticipation. I think particularly because of the way the news cycle works, sometimes it helps to actually wait and build anticipation and make yourself a topic of discussion so that when you do throw your hat into the ring, there's still a lot of media focus around you. The same could be argued as, a, as of Chen Shu-jong. That's why there's so much delay in announcing that he'd be the DPV's candidate. Uh, but then, for example, with our court, it'll be seen how serious that is. For example, announcing so late may mean a run that is not very serious. I don't see any ads for him in the area, for example, when other candidates have been putting up ads for months. Well, there is always a bit like a drama um, in the registration for elections in Taiwan. The trick is to attract media attention with costumes, bicycles and trending poses. <laughs> there, are, is, there is also a lack of discussion. That, that's, I think, the biggest problem. There is a lack of discussion about the local policies that these ho- hopeful might implement when they take office. Again, the debate is blurred by China and Taiwan. So we should discuss more. Uh, we should discuss, for example, the soaring prices of commodities travel restrictions, minimum wage issues and mental mental health problems during the pandemic. But we can't because, regretfully, Taiwan democracy also suffers from attention disorder, meaning that we have trouble concentrating on those real issues and may act on impulse and just get distracted by those politicians who actually are looking for media attention.
Like like Mr. R. called Brian when he posed pretending to smoke a blunt. <laughs> so that's a good question, though, actually, because I think it's I don't necessarily think his run is serious. Though there have been some cases in recent years in which entertainers suddenly threw their hats into the ring and actually gone to office. Froggy Chu, also in singing, is a good example. He did not run a single ad in the area. Everything was conducted entirely through the internet, and he gone to office actually. Uh, and he has been one of the more progressive city councillors in Taipei. So our corner, it's a question how serious he is about his run, but he did raise policies such as legalizing marijuana, legalizing sex work, which is already very prevalent in, in Wanhua, where he's running in Zhongzhen Wanhua, and legalizing modified vehicles. And so he did raise policy proposals there that are up for debate. It's possible that this run is only in order to draw attention to these uh, issues that, let's say, he wishes to push for advocacy for, because he's not too serious, which is another factor that happens. You do have candidates running this way because they want to draw attention to an issue. But I think that's right, that a lot of the discussion is not around politics or policies, but around personalities or about party ID. I think that's particularly the case because of how pardon splits are so deep in Taiwanese society. And Dimitri, of course, in the Taipei race, Zhang Wen'an is leading the pack at the moment, according to the local polls, followed by Vivian Huang, and then the former health minister, who got applauded for his handling of the COVID outbreak, is in third place. Well, the race, the race is on. It's a bit too, a bit, I think, too early uh, to call the race. But uh, it's also well. Uh, there is a debate here whether you should wait until the last minute to announce your uh, your pitch uh, to to the job, or you should announce earlier. So uh, the KMT hopeful announced his pitch earlier and try to appeal to the younger voters. And I I believe that this year, along of uh, uh, those. Uh, Local hopefuls, they all have in mind that there will be more than 700,000 new voters who maybe uh, want to have a look look at issues in a different way. And then maybe the KMT hopeful, because he had a chance to start it earlier, he was uh, successful in appealing to young voters. Now, while the race, we still have two months to go, two, three months to go. So I'm pretty, pretty sure that they will catch up uh, later on. So the young voters, Brian, do you think they'll be looking at R called smoking a blunt <laughs> or looking at maybe Jung Wen An to do something a bit more serious? Well, there are some more pro-marijuana legalization candidates, for example, that are quite well known these days. Zoe Lee from the Green Party is a good example, though she's often running as uh, for advocacy and not, I think, as a serious candidate sometimes. Uh, but I think that does point to an interesting issue, which is that we young people sometimes do hope for discussion of policy rather than to focus on personalities or uh, this kind of uh, party ID issue. And so then, for example, younger candidates in past uh, in past years have sometimes tried to avoid the traditional means of advertising, for example, saying they're not going to use speaker trucks or just campaign ads everywhere. They'll try to have discussion where they'll put QR codes on their uh, advertising flyers so you can scan and see their policies because you're not going to fit all that onto uh, just a flyer. But the issue then is that particularly actually for older voters, they won't vote for you if you don't play by the traditional rules of the game. Oftentimes, then the perception is then that you see yourself as above them, as elite, and are not willing to rub soldiers with them. And so I think there's a kind of interesting uh, game there to play in terms of politics. Taiwan is, of course, a KMT candidate, which has have stronger mobilization networks and experience doing this traditional outreach. But uh, it's also to be seen then if he tries to embrace more internet, for example, means of outreach or other ways to reach young people. So, Dimitri, do you think we could be seeing a lot more sort of web-based, internet-based electioneering going on during this local election than previous local elections. Yes, uh, even for the former health minister, uh, he's running a very successful Twitter channel 
and he they are very good at promoting his policies in English on Twitter, I, where I th- but, which I think is very interesting. Well, it's very unlikely that the former health minister will smoke uh, pot <laughs> or do a stunt that way, but there is room, and uh, well, I'm pretty confident that it will catch up later. Yeah, let's be seen. I think that's uh, quite interesting, though. I mean, in terms of Chen's outreach, uh, the attempt is to make him seem less technocratic and more to outreach to young people. I mean, people have somebody laughed at the images of him, for example, engaging in dance battles or uh, visiting restaurants or learning various things that young people do. But this happened before. I mean, with Koenja, for example, when he ran for office, it was a similar situation in which he had an older candidate that was supported by some young people, and then you would have him do these things to appeal to young people for his public image. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but I think it's a challenge here with regards to the DPP and the KMT, that the TPP is a more untested party, doesn't have as strong local networks as the KMT necessarily, by virtue of not having been around longer, but it's polling quite well. And so I think it's an interesting kind of matchup then between the KMT and the TPP. And it's also possible then to split the vote, and that allows for Chen to gain. So I think it is still too early to see in that sense. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and Singaporean entrepreneur Joseph Hua this week announced the launch of Next Apple News, a company he said will employ 96% of Taiwan Apple Online's laid-off workforce. Now, the statement came after a failed bid to purchase the tabloid news site and a day before the Taiwan Apple Online actually ceased to publish any new material. Now, Taiwan Apple Online announced on June the 8th that it had been sold to anonymous buyer and the Singaporean entrepreneur was reported to be that very buyer. Now, according to Far, who was the co-founder of the Taiwan-based live streaming platform 17 Live, 96% of Taiwan Apple Online's 280 staff have so far agreed to move to the new company. And he says Next Apple News is solely funded by Turn Capital, an investment company he chairs and is expected to receive an annual investment of between 300 and 400 million NT. He also says that Next Apple News will maintain neutrality. Now, the Ministry of Economic Affairs on Tuesday said that it had received a trademark registration for Next Apple News. However, the ministry added that any further investment in the news outlet will be subject to review under related laws on the ceilings of foreign investments in media. So, Dimitri, of course, people shed a tear when the Apple Daily closed. Less people probably shed a tear when the website ceased putting new information on its website. But now we have a new buyer and it's going to come up with the same type of package, it sounds like. That's true. It's a successful story. I wouldn't call it a a failed bid. It's a successful bid to take over the Apple Daily. Uh, They too, like you just mentioned, more than 200 staff will join the new company. That's about 300 families that will maybe celebrate Christmas and Chinese New Year and they, they will be super happy to have a job. It's also a successful investment in the Taiwan uh, in the mid-Taiwan media landscape. Um, the founder of Turn Capital said he would invest between 300 million and 400 million per year. So it's a successful, successful foreign investment for Taiwan. It's also a successful bet uh, on the Taiwan uh, media industry, which is uh, struggling to find a new business model. Um, M17, uh, it's a streaming company, and we can maybe anticipate that because streaming is also the future of the media industry, we can anticipate more synergies between uh, M17 streaming and the media landscape. We can maybe envision 
reporters on all reporters uh, whenever they join an event to stream direct online. So it's good for Taiwan media landscape. And I would say my last comment is that also it's also good for the Taiwanese people because they will be not, they, there is no pay, paywall anymore. So you can also access all the Apple Daily content now for free. So while some people used to buy the Apple Daily or maybe register or uh, pay a subscription fee, they don't have to pay anymore. So, well, we can all access the, the Apple Daily for free. So it's a just win-win for everyone. So I think it's a question because particularly there are concerns about that this is a case in which, for example, Chinese capital may be investing in a Taiwanese media outlet through the frame of posing as though it was from Singapore or Hong Kong. And so this was a challenge raised then when Kenny Wee was involved because he was uh, in from Hong Kong. And so when he's working for Fall, there's already these concerns. Uh, concerns have also been raised regarding, for example, Chinese information and 17 Live. Uh, part of the contention regarding this is, for example, that after the Apple Daily in Hong Kong shut down, a Hong Kong coin-appointed liquidator attempted to acquire the assets of the Hong Kong of the Taiwan Apple Daily or to sell this. At the same time, as news of this purchase came forward, there's concerns about what happened with the data from the Apple Daily. Uh, for example, the Apple Daily has contributors and writers who are Taiwanese in China, Hong Kongers, and even Chinese. And so this could be used to target them if they have written things that are politically incriminating. Uh, information about the subscriber base, about who worked for the Apple Daily, that could also be used to harm foreign workers. And so it's actually kind of interesting then that the staff did go over. So that raises questions about what are the conditions that made them feel safe to go over in that sense. Uh, I think also then uh, there's concern about what happened in the past. I mean, the if with these past writers and this past data, uh, the claim now from the new company is that this will be sealed. Uh, some of this data will be permanently sealed. Some will be sealed for five to ten years. Uh, but there have been criticisms then from civil society groups that have been working on media oversight issues that seal does not mean the same thing as destroyed. And what does seal mean in this case? What, what does that actually consist of? Uh, for example, when the coin-appointed liquidator tried to acquire the Apple Daily Taiwan's assets, the government got involved. The Ministry of Culture forbade Apple Daily Taiwan to hand over data across borders to Hong Kong authorities. And so I think that's still a concern here. And Dimitri, do you think this data should be destroyed or kept? Or what should we do with it? Well, I think according to Taiwan legislation, the data is actually already protected. So whether the data can be transferred to a third party, uh, I think it was part of the uh, discussion they had when the, they made, did not transfer the company. So I believe the original uh, company kept most of the data they didn't want to share with the new owner of the, the new, not the new owner because it's not a successful bid, but the, the, uh, with Joseph Roy. So I think the, the, the data are, are safe and uh, there shouldn't be much concern about that. And what about the content of these? Should we, should we expect the Apple Daily Point two? Well, it's it's very likely that the the Apple Daily, which is uh, one of the most successful media company in Taiwan, will keep doing what they do best and they do it the same way. But they will be also, I believe, uh, doing more streaming because under the Turn um, Capital uh, company, there are some uh, small companies like. Uh, who also handle like podcasts. So I believe they will try to integrate different kind of products within the Apple Daily website. So that's good for the the readers and the viewers, and will have better content uh, on the mid. I think on the mid on the short and mid term. And Brian, neutrality. 
Yeah, I mean, regarding the data, for example, uh, it's not that hard to copy data. I mean, we recently just had a leak of over one billion Chinese data on civilians. I mean, that's so it's not actually that hard. So there are concerns about that. But yeah, regarding neutrality and the content production, uh, for example, FDA had political stances that were more pro-democracy. Although it would go after any camp, will that continue in the present? That's to be seen. Uh, looking at the content so far, it does look similar. Uh, there's some entertainment news and so forth. Though I think the social media presence for Apple Daily has been taking off a bit slowly because they are starting from scratch and having a new Facebook page and, and etc. in order to reach out to people. Uh, but in that respect, Apple Daily is, uh, has been a significant force in Taiwan's media because it really did change the media landscape. There's much more commercialization of the media after that, uh, much more tabloid stories, and so that's what it's known for. But this, is this actually what consumers want in the present? That's a question. Uh, around eight years ago, for example, Apple Daily was actually very known for being a, hosting the conversation with a lot of op Ed's, hard-hitting op-eds from writers of different perspectives that eventually faded as time went on, but still often did have many, much scoops. Uh, you had the fading away of the 3D animations it was once known for. But then the question is, if, for example, if you do incorporate streaming, what kind of model are you moving towards? Are you moving towards one that's very centered on journalists that are personalities, for example? That would be an interesting development for the uh, outlet. And moving in another direction now, United Microelectronics founder Robert Tsao on Thursday announced that he regained his Taiwanese citizenship and was donating 1 billion NT to train a militia in support of Taiwan's defence efforts against China. Now, Tsao displayed an oversized version of his new ID card wearing a blue flak jacket at a press conference in Taipei where he told reporters that he was so excited to have his Taiwanese citizenship restored after renouncing his Singaporean citizenship. Now, he obtained that in 2011 after renouncing his Taiwanese citizenship and moving to Singapore, citing dissatisfaction with government restrictions that prevented his company from investing in China. Tsai has also been an advocate in the past for legislation which would allow Taiwan to seek unification with China through peaceful means, including putting the issue to a national referendum. But he has since become a rather vocal critic of Beijing, and he pledged to donate money, 3 billion NT's worth of money in fact, to help Taiwan boost its defence capabilities shortly after China launched its days of intensive military drills earlier this, or last month, basically, what it is now. Now, speaking to reporters, Tsao said that he will stand with his courageous compatriots against any invasion by China to ensure that Taiwan remains the land of the free and the home of the brave, like the United States. So, Brian, I mean, Mr Tsao, obviously... An becomes Taiwanese again, <laughs> but obviously, there might, do you think there's something else behind this? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, for example, uh, he did seem to have an identity switch in the past uh, 10 years that he's now so pro-Taiwan and even throwing money into defense efforts, civilian defense efforts and that sort of thing. He's working with the Kuma Academy, one of the figures of which is Puma Shen, who is an information expert. Uh, and so they're conducting, for example, disaster relief, emergency uh, training, uh, medical training. Uh, that kind of thing, and drilling in the case of emergency. Uh, but I think also it's interesting in that respect because of the fact that where does the semiconductor industry, for example, fit into this? And so I think Tao's shift in opinions will be seen as perhaps a metric of the semiconductor industry weighing in on politics, particularly cross-strait politics. And so I think that, for example, there's a lot of concern about tech companies. TSMC is seen as more pro-Taiwan, but for example, Foxconn seems as maybe more pro-China, and other companies too. And so I think it's interesting then to see semiconductor executives jumping in on politics in this way, participating very directly. I mean, we saw a taste of this with COVID, when, uh, when electronics companies such as Foxconn and TSMC got involved in, for example, attempts to negotiate vaccine purchases for Taiwan. And Dimitri, I mean, do you see Terry Guo donating to Taiwan's defense? <laughs> well, he already donated to Taiwan. He, was, he helped in many ways to secure vaccines for Taiwan. So there are many ways to be vocal and support Taiwan. There are many ways, more some some more political, some less politicals. But uh, 
I think it's a, a for. Yeah, there are many ways to do this and and to to to, to achieve the, the 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 same results. Now, whether other executives from uh, major uh, semiconductor companies might follow suit, uh, we will see. Um, yeah, it's it's a bit early, but we, we can at least say that he had an experience. Uh, he knows Taiwan, he knows Singapore, and he knows China best. He invests in those three places, and he understands the way those people work. So. If he decided in one point in his life that he wants to put more emphasis on Taiwan, well, we, we, we can respect that. We, 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 we maybe disagree. We might have seen or done things differently. But going, putting, I mean, willing to getting the, your ID card again and invest again in Taiwan, I think it's a good thing. And Brian, what, what's with the blue flag jacket, mate? Yeah, I mean, it's for signaling, I guess. I mean, it's always one of those things. I mean, I'm always amused by the signaling that uh, tech company executives sometimes do. Terry Gore, during one of the presidential debates, pulled out a, uh, one of the candidate debates for the primaries, pulled out a puppet, electronic puppet, the uh, Budaisi traditional public, and had it talk. And so props, props are often part of Taiwan's politics, I guess. And before we go this week, and in some rather offbeat news, the Taipei City Police Department's Rapid Transit Division on Monday reported that a pet squirrel had escaped from its carrier in a crowded MRT station and it bit a woman on the leg. Now, the pet rodent was reunited with its owner following the incident, which police have described as being the first of its kind in the transit system's history. Now, the incident occurred at the MRT's Zhongxiao Xinsheng Station in mid-August, and police say the squirrel climbed up the woman's leg and bit her on the back of the knee. Now, the pet squirrel had been travelling with its owner when it managed to get out of its carrier case and run amok on the station. Now, the owner apparently didn't notice that the rodent had escaped until the train had left the station, and the owner basically get off at the next stop and returned to the station where the incident had occurred. Now, police say the squirrel's owner apologised to the woman who had been bitten and offered to pay her medical expenses. So, Brian, my question here, mate, is... A pet squirrel to start with, and what on earth was it doing on the MRT? Does it does it mean I could take my pet iguana on the MRT? Yeah, I think it's one of those things. It's often discussed regarding bringing pets onto public transport, and I think Taiwan is no different. When, for example, you have all these people walking around with parrots on uh, in night markets, for example, or carrying various pets, and it sometimes ends up in the news: snakes or lizards, or example I've seen, or people walking cats. Uh, on leashes. And so I guess the squirrel is the latest example. Uh, I mean, particularly what bothered me was that there was no follow-up in the news reporting about whether the bitten woman had gotten, for example, a shot for rabies or anything like that. Uh, that kind of bothered me. And then the fine was only 1,500 NT, so I guess that is actually not too bad. It's more like a slap on the wrist. I mean, if you have a pet squirrel and an enemy and you can encounter them in MRT, that's all you have to pay, perhaps. You can have an attack squirrel. Well, no, I don't think so. Squirrels are, are <laughs> everywhere, and we and we need to be more careful. Like a big, about a week ago, they caused an hour-long blackout in southern Taiwan, cutting power to more than eight thousand households. So, well, we should be more careful. And I think maybe squirrels are taking over Taiwan, and we well, uh, we can see. Um, what what concerns me uh, for the MRT is that. What we could see very quickly over the next few weeks, and we have more regulations about pets, and we could see like a new poster saying that uh, we should not do this and that again. So there are many of these restrictions on Taipei MRT already. Uh, the last one I saw this week was about uh, don't bother uh, guide, dogs, guide dogs from you know, visually impaired people. Because uh, obviously some people saw the cute uh, dogs and tried to pet the, pet the dog. So... Well, yes. In the future, we might need a, we might see a new posters and new regulations against uh, against pet and squirrels. 
but we I'm not sure it was it was an accident it was the first time in the long in a, in many years that we've seen a, a squirrel uh, attack yeah squirrel yeah. attack in Thailand <laughs> because Brian, my question here was I mean was it a pet squirrel how was it a pet squirrel did she buy the squirrel from some pet shop or did she go to a park and simply round it up and stick it in a cage that's a good question I think uh, particularly now uh, there's a lot of interest in new pets people find about new animals and it's like they're all the rage and you have them appearing in coffee shops in farms uh, things like that and so that includes anything from capybaras to uh, the sika deer or uh, for example I've seen crocodiles literally in cafes uh, hedgehogs eagles I've seen literally a, an eagle in a cafe uh, and so forth and so I think then once in a while these animals get loose I mean there was an incident a while ago I think in a coffee shop where a raccoon actually that was the pet raccoon the shop actually got loose and bit somebody or something of that sort so I think this is maybe increasingly common well, it goes back to what we said about the drones earlier. It's a well, maybe a good picture, uh, a good video for TikTok. But well, we it's not suitable maybe to take some of you, all your pets on public transportation, uh, knowing that uh, there are some tight restrictions in Taiwan uh, regarding the squirrel thing. The police warned that pet owners whose animal escape or injure others can face a maximum of twelve thousand anti dollar fine as well up to three days detention. So well, you should be careful on the type of MRT. Yeah, I won't be taking my pet Komodo dragon <laughs> on the MRT anytime soon. Anyway, that's all. We'll leave it here on Taiwan this week. This week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Dimitri Buyas. Good evening. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And there won't be a show next Friday, September the 9th, as it'll be the mid-autumn festival holiday here in Taiwan. And, well, we'll all be at home eating mooncakes and pomelos. But don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app. We can get access to all our previous shows. And we'll be back on Friday, September the 16th with a new episode. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.